Welcome to Treasure Mountain, the podcast that inspires and guides us to find the treasure within human experience. I'm your host, Saul Hanna. In Western culture over the past century, the growth of interest in psychology and Buddhism have occurred together and have often intersected. Yet they come from quite different views of the world and the nature of the mind. What is the relationship between Buddhism and psychotherapy in the modern world? Where do these two intersect and where do they diverge? And how can we understand the nature of mind from both points of view? On this episode of Treasure Man podcast, we are privileged to have as our guest Aya Jatindria, who is currently resident at Viveka Hermitage in southern New South Wales. Aya Jatindria first trained as a monastic in the Theravada forest tradition village of Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Samedo for over 16 years from 1988 to 2004. After leaving the monastic order, she gained a master's degree in Buddhist psychotherapy practice with the Karuna Institute in the UK and continued to teach meditation and retreats on invitation. Returning to live in Australia in 2008, she practiced as a Buddhist psychotherapist and taught meditation, Buddhism and psychotherapy in various capacities. She was the director of training for the Australian Association of Buddhist Counselors and Psychotherapists for several years. In early 2018, Jitendria re-entered the monastic life at Santee Forest Monastery in the Southern Highlands of New South Wales and held the role of guiding teacher and spiritual director there for a time. In 2021, she helped set up Viveka Hermitage in Southern New South Wales, where she now resides. I'm so glad that you've joined us on this exploration of Buddhism and psychotherapy as we seek for the treasure within. Welcome to Treasure Mountain. How are you today, Aya? Hi, Sol. I'm very good. Thank well, you. Well, I'm really appreciative that someone with your experience has come to join us on the podcast to deal with this very interesting, yet somewhat tricky topic to deal with about Buddhism and psychotherapy. And I'd like to start with, I guess, your own personal journey. It seems that most of your adult life, you've either been a Buddhist nun or a psychotherapist. Could you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to become a Buddhist nun, then a psychotherapist, and now back again? Yes. Gosh, you know, I think um, the very short answer of what inspired me to become a nun, although it might not sound inspiring, but it's suffering, <laughs> the experience of suffering, the experience of dukkha. Um, and the search, actually, the search for understanding. That's really the inspiration. Yeah. So, yes, I was quite young when I first ordained in England. I was um, 25 years old. And I had traveled overseas when I was just, just before I turned 23 and through Southeast Asia and um, Europe, went out on a one-way ticket with a friend and worked for a bit in England. And that was where I first encountered the monasteries in England. So, you know, I was about just before turning 24 was my first retreat at Amaravati Buddhist Monastery. 
Now, that would have been 1987, the first part of 1987. So uh, Amaravati was a fairly new and developing monastery of an international community. So my own search, I think, and recognition of the kind of troublesomeness of the interior emotional world as well as the the um what shall we say the the strangeness of encountering the external world of conflict as a young person um really mm, it really uh whipped up in me um a kind of inquiry and desire to understand um because i was i was brought up in a very normal kind of, you know, working middle class situation, but, you know, our parents worked hard to afford us, our generation, the children, a, a good education and the opportunity really to do anything we want when we, when we um, finished our studies. And I found myself upon this question, well, what do I really want? What do I really want to do? And the thing that truly interested me was really the interior well, I could call it the interior life, but really understanding this mind, understanding the world. And that inquiry was quickened through, I, I trained as an artist. I was naturally proficient in art from a very young age. And it was art and crafts that drew my interest more than academic studies. And as a youngster leaving school, I wasn't really aware of the art world that I could enter into. But as soon as I did become aware that I could go to art school, um, that was my direction. And this practice of art really become, became a vehicle for my inquiry into, let's call it the, the interior world, but really the psychology, our psychology, our psyche, our being, and the inquiry into, you know, what, what motivate, what's motivating me and where is this experience of suffering coming from, both internally and externally. So I wasn't aware of Buddhism at that young age. I'd done some reading in my, my uh, existential inquiries were becoming more spiritual. Um, so I'm sure I read some spiritual books, but I felt like I didn't encounter yeah. Buddhism in its fullest sense until I went to England and decided to uh, that meditation was going to be the vehicle for, for deeper inquiry. And then I, through happenstance, through serendipity, I found um, a Buddhist vihara near where I was working at the time. And I practiced there for a couple of months under Venerable Rewata Dharma, a, a well-known Burmese monk. And when I was returning to London, he suggested I go to Amaravati Monastery to continue my inquiries mm. and so the rest is kind yeah, of history yeah but you've also been mm. a psychotherapist and in a sense psychotherapy does try to understand our inner world and our mind so you've been on that side of the fence as well um how how do you feel like on just on a subjective basis in terms of your own personal search how has that helped you or has it been different? What, what are your own impressions in terms of the, the intersections and contrasts between the Buddhist path 
and psychotherapy or psychology? Well, I mean, for me, it, it's been a seamless um, process, really, because the the psychotherapy that I studied after uh, leaving the monastic life um, over 16 years as a nun, based at Amravati, um, it was a seamless process because it was a, a, a Buddhist psychotherapy training, and um, we as monastics in England, we already had a relationship with the founders of this Buddhist Psychotherapy Institute, uh, Mora and Franklin Sills, and they were really support. They were Buddhists themselves and um, had developed a Buddhist-based psychotherapeutic model, and um, it was around. You know, um, trying to think, it would, probably would have been in the early to mid-90s, and they were supporting our communities both um, in, you know, just as, as lay people supporting community, but also as as skilled therapists helping us, helping parts of our community with our own ways of communicating within <clears throat> community. Because uh, it does require some skills that we need to learn at times to navigate, um, you know, the landscape of community. So we'd already been doing some work with the Karuna Institute as a group. So when, um, as a group of nuns, so when I did decide to leave, obviously I had to find a means to support myself um, coming back into uh, lay life. And and the, the obvious thing for me was to train as a Buddhist psychotherapist. There were training opportunities with Karuna Institute. And that was just felt like a continuation of my learning, or the, or the Buddha Dharma, or the understanding through my own practices. And none was just channeled into the practice of Buddhist-based psychotherapy. It was so seamless because their model had been built on Buddhist principles, really grounded in the uh, Buddhist psychology to a large degree. But their model was integrating. Um, really the evolution of Western psychotherapeutic understanding uh, with developmental models and ontological philosophical ways of seeing with a Buddhist um, philosophical and psychological view. Mm. Yeah, so, it, you know, what I encountered in in my life as a nun is obviously when there's this, people think, may think that life as a Buddhist monastic must must be so serene and simple. And I know so well, you don't think that because you've been <laughs> on the inside <laughs> and close to a sun and Perth. But many people idealize yeah. what it's like. But actually living as part of community is 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 an incredibly uh, interesting and powerful process. Mm. It's not all easy sailing. And um with a with a sangha that was essentially based in a Thai tradition, and had all the cultural trappings not only of Thailand but ancient mm. India, and so you've got all these a, a whole range of of Westerners and Asians Europeans coming from a very idealistic point of view, but trying to live this life of a Buddhist monastic, and so. Just in the context, there's stuff to navigate, making community work, but also in the interior life as we develop our practice, we 
we start to see so much about how suffering is generated and hopefully, potentially, how suffering is allayed. But what I encountered was, you know, a full-on head collision with with the interior world of emotional turbulence in, in many cases. And grappling with that and trying to understand that through the Buddhist perspective is um, is how our practice unfolds. And there were certainly lots of insights and understandings, but I also felt a lack of really understanding a deeper psychological, how to, you know, the developmental aspect of the person, of the being, how does this um, particular personality uh, ways of being develop? Mm. You know, why is one, why, why are there these, you know, problems with um, uh, particular forms like you know, strong anger or emotional outbursts or grief or depression or particular obsession or addictions? They all have their particularities and they're, in fact, they're, they're kind of based in a developmental history of, of the personality. And the Buddhism doesn't go into the details mm. of that so much, and that's where the psychotherapeutic side yeah, I'd like goes. to pick up on that point because that's an interesting one. Uh, you, just, you spoke about, for instance, you know, any of us who've been in a monastery for any length of time, you know that you're going to come up against you know, anger, greed, all of these things that come up in the mind, which are part of the psyche. And it can be incredibly challenging because in a monastic form, there's really nowhere for them to go. <laughs> I mean, not, not, not. Mm, yes, you're in quite yeah. a boundary. Uh, um, mm. And then I guess, I don't know, would you say that perhaps, you know, the Buddhist approach can perhaps be, I don't know whether the idealistic is the right word or whether um, perhaps, you know, to a certain extent, it just, you don't necessarily get that detailed um, advice on what to do in that, with that particular thing that just came up in your mind. Do you think that psychotherapy or psychology helps in that regard, or do they help in different ways? What What are your thoughts on that? It depends. You know, there are different, so many different approaches or different models of psychotherapy, and of course, I'm I'm trained in the Buddhist one, so it it, it easily works both ways. You know, but. Um, it's not so much that the Buddhist um, teachings or the Buddhist mod model is idealistic, but but we as practitioners we come ah, with a right, lot of idealism. Yes, yeah. You know, we we pick up the theory and we understand the theory, and then we, to a certain degree, and then you know we, we've idealized it or reified it to a certain extent. But when things don't go the way we think mm. they should, <laughs> and we come up against obstructions and confusions and difficulties, and we but we don't really understand what's going going on. This is where, obviously, mindfulness is the basis both of the Buddhist psychotherapeutic practice and the Buddhist meditation practice, and the development of wisdom through seeing mm. clearly what's going on. So the psychotherapeutic approach in my understanding is just works from a bit more of a relational perspective, whereas you you can observe what's going on in your, your body-mind experience and to detect, um, say, the, the process of, of trauma or, or 
whatever's arising there, which is causing suffering. And you can learn to bring certain skills to that to allow it to relax. So it's the same in the, the Buddhist approach, but sometimes when we haven't developed those skills yet, those very emotions can be so obscuring that you don't know and you don't know mm, what to mm. do, you know? And and sometimes within a monastic life we can even though you live in community, you can feel quite isolated mm. because there's there is a lot of upholding of a form in monasticism. And even though we develop spiritual friendship, sometimes it's not the kind of relational field that one always feels completely secure mm. in, if you know what I mean. Whereas the notion in psychotherapy, of, at least in the Buddhist psychotherapy that I did, is that wounding our experience of suffering actually first occurs in the relational field and therefore it needs to heal within a skillful relational mm. field. So this is really looking at the territory developmental, the developmental territory of the being, pre, prenatal, perinatal, and we can also put the, the Buddhist larger overview on it and, and think of past lives if we want to take it back that way because some unresolved stuff bleeds through. You know, it's not necessarily just what happens to a being in this life that conditions their body-mind mm. system, but stuff can bleed through from previous Although that lives. is a very Buddhist idea rather than a more mainstream yeah. psychotherapy idea. You know, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Well, really, really the mainstream psychotherapy is just looking at this life in terms of developmental Okay, so that's one um, point, point of distinction. Yeah. Uh, I want to zoom of difference, yeah. Uh, I want to zoom out for a moment um, and just note that you know in the modern Western world, the growth of psychotherapy has been influenced by the growing interest in Buddhism and vice versa. Could you tell us how you think Buddhism and psychotherapy, and I guess here I'm talking a bit more like mainstream psychotherapy, how do you think they've intersected? Mm. Well, there's been a great deal of intersection um, I would say over the last 40 years, particularly, it's not that it wasn't there before, but as Buddhism itself has become increasingly absorbed into our culture in the West, um, you know, let's say the first generation of Westerners who went to the East to practice spirituality and to practice Buddhism, that would have been uh, in the... 40s, 50s, 60s, but predominantly 50s and 60s. And many of those uh, practitioners came back and established places. Arjun Sumato and the senior monks that came back with him, Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, these pioneers who did their own practices uh, and uh, development starting in Asia brought back Buddhist teachings, and, and there have been some of the main influences over the last few decades. Um, and many others who have done their own um, journeying into to Buddhism and non-dual spiritual teachings have come back to the West and become psychotherapists or psychologists or neuropsychologists and are bringing their own understanding into that field. And so more, you know, there's such a, 
such an easy overlap because Buddhist psychology is looking at how the mind works and particularly looking at how suffering is generated. And we can say the same for the attempts of psychology and psychotherapy. It's concerned primarily with the experience of suffering on the personal level and the attempt to engage in a way that we can allow, get gain some enough insight or relief or understanding to allow that suffering to ease out. So both models and paradigms are concerned with personal suffering and finding a way to relieve mm. it. The difference, I think, in, in psychology initially in the early stages was that they saw like a normal level of functioning in society. There would still be some degree of suffering, of course, that we all go through, but, you know, coming out of extreme neurotic or psychotic suffering to something, a normal level of perception to be able to navigate the normal vicissitudes of life. Uh, whereas a Buddhist approach is looking at the same but going that much mm. further. It's saying actually you can come to the complete cessation of suffering through deep insight and penetration to the very nature of reality itself, of consciousness itself. Yeah. So this is really profound because it's like, yes, we can go that far as far as psychology says we can go, finding a balanced way of living, coming out of the extremes of mental disease. And then Buddhism says that we can go further, you know, that true health is a state completely free of mm. suffering, with freed through wisdom and understanding of the nature of reality, the nature of the mind, and complete understanding of how suffering is generated from within um, and how it is allayed or, or no longer generated. Well, thank you for that, because that's a really clear so answer think... to that question as well. Like That's both their, what they've got in common, like the, the concern about the search about overcoming suffering, but also the distinction. And I guess in one sense, you're saying, mm. you know, psychology wants to take us to this, you know, normal level, whereas Buddhism says, well, you can go a whole lot further. You can go to the cessation of suffering. Um, yeah. And Buddhism says, you know, the true normal actually is more yeah. that uh, full understanding. That's who, you know, and it's interesting that one translation of the Dharma, one old translation is the norm. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> to penetrate to the Dharma, to understand the Dharma, to understand yeah, the norm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to take just another slightly different angle and ask how does Buddhism mm -hmm. influence your understanding of the mind? compared to, say, for instance, the view of psychology's view of the mind? How, how are those things different? Well, as I said, there are different, many different models, psycho, psychological models or psychotherapeutic models. So different models will uh, take as different starting points, different paradigms for how they see the mind, you know, how they see the cause of... Um, disease and how they might go about to relieve it. And since I was trained in a Buddhist model of psychotherapy, we take the very same mm. frameworks of of the Buddhist approach, which is seeing that, um, you know, the basis of, of the expression of disease is the, you know, the expression of the various kilesa based in greed, hatred, delusion, the cause of which is ignorance. It, the, the not understanding the true nature of mind, 
not understanding these four noble truths, which is very essential, you know, not understanding suffering as it arises, as it truly is, not understanding its cause as it truly is, not understanding its cessation or how it's allayed as it truly is, and not understanding the way to bring that uh, about to, to a point where that path is said to be complete and one has full understanding mm. and full freedom from suffering. So the Buddhist psychotherapeutic model that I'm engaged in, I was engaged in, I don't do it anymore since reordaining, but um, it takes that same viewpoint. It is possible to come fully out of suffering and that's through realizing the true nature of mind, and so we might call that Buddha nature, or or true nature, or or the deathless penetrating to the deathless element. But basically, there's this, or the ground of being, to use the Mahayana term, and to learn to trust that and rest in that, and developing the power or the the qualities of mindfulness, of presence, accessing the inherent qualities of compassion of wisdom, particularly the four Brahma-viharas, which we talk about as inherent qualities of that Buddha nature. Although we can cultivate kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity, ultimately rec we recognize that they're expressions of, of the heart when it's resting in its own nature. Mm. Anyway, they're natural expressions. They're inherent qualities of a liberated mm. heart. Mm. Mm. Okay, so let's get a little bit practical now. Um, as, uh, is, is there any, maybe some examples of Buddhist teachings that you think can be beneficially integrated into psychotherapy? Well, yeah, as, as I said, I guess because I did that psychotherapeutic model, so much can be integrated, um, Buddhist psychotherapeutic model, the, they've fully integrated those four Brahma Viharas. Mm. So I uh, am practicing this core, pro, what, what's called core process psychotherapy or mindfulness based psychotherapy in the core process style. Uh, it rests in, in the recognition that uh, awareness itself is curative and that healing happens in this, what we call. Uh, emptiness or recognizing true nature of emptiness right. or the insubstantiality of uh, impermanent phenomena and that from that place of emptiness or source is another word that they put onto it that these qualities of kindness, compassion, equanimity, serenity um, we can learn how to rest in those to trust in in, in in that as a response, um, an intuitive response in, in the world, in our life. Um, so, you know, that's a direct reliance on, on Buddhist, um, not just concepts, but, but models and Buddhist view of reality. And coming into that place, really using mindfulness and awareness as your as your main tool, as your main resource. And this is where other, other kinds of psychotherapy in the last few decades have really picked up 
on what Buddhism offers in terms of mindfulness. You've got many different mindfulness-based uh, therapies, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and others that use mindfulness-based stuff and um, body-based work, uh, incorporating mindfulness presence, the power of awareness. And observation is another thing. Through the power of mindfulness, we can start to observe the mind in terms of these impermanent formations. So in Buddhism, we talk about the aggregates, the personality factors, and our practice is really to see that these are impermanent phenomena, fluctuations within the mind stream. Um, the main problem is that we habitually identify mm. with them, which gives rise to suffering. We don't see that they're truly impermanent, they're conditioned, and being impermanent and conditioned, if we grasp at them, it's inherently dukkha. They're not really who and what we are. They're insubstantial and they're conditioned formations. So not only the Buddhist psychotherapeutic model, but other psychotherapeutic approaches have also picked up on this. We may look to Gestalt or other psychotherapies that have been influenced in this way to really use that quality of mindfulness, awareness, and presence to recognize that these various formations that arise, mental, physical, emotional, not we're not denying them, we're not trying to get rid of them, but we want to observe them in awareness and particularly recognize that they are impermanent and they're changing. So it's what they call process, that self is a process, it's not a static thing. And when a person really sees this for themselves, that their self-images and their ideas of who and what they are and how they should be or how they have been are just mental, conditioned mental phenomena and that they don't have to attach to them, that this is really a, a, a breakthrough hmm. in their practice and, in, and similarly in psychotherapeutic ways. So it doesn't mean... You know, these self-formations don't arise, these aggregates don't arise, but it sh changes your view. You don't feel so caught by them or caught in I just want to ask, a, yeah, it does, does make sense. Make it sense? makes very much sense. Um, I do want to ask a kind of a prickly question. I don't know if you want to answer it. I know you can't name names, yeah. but, uh, well, this morning I, I was listening to a, <laughs> um, I listened to a podcast and there was a man who was talking about you know, he had a pretty normal life and he got married and had kids, but he, all throughout his adult life he was experiencing depression and he went to a psychotherapist. This was not a Buddhist psychotherapist. I don't think he did any mindfulness uh, and he mm. was taking drugs and, and he still reached a point where he wanted to commit suicide. Um, in your experience... Mm. Taking drugs uh, as part of the psychotherapy? Uh, no, uh, well, or? yes, the, um, as in no. prescribed, prescribed uh, antidepressants, yeah, yeah. Yes, right. medication, medications, yeah. yes, um, yeah. Uh, my question is, in your experience with, with, with psychotherapy, do you think that mindfulness is like this, is a thing that can be quite, um, don't, can it make that much of a difference? Like, um, uh, I guess I'm trying to draw a contrast to psychotherapy without mindfulness to m psychotherapy with mindfulness. Do you really feel like it's um, it can be like that decisive factor that really changes things? 
or is there just some cases where people maybe they've got things happening from coming from previous lives and they're just their their mental suffering is so great and there's not a lot that can turn it around what's your your impression of that based on your experience Look, there's so many very variable factors mm. what's important I think for a successful therapy, and they're not all going to be successful mm. anyway, even with a perfect therapist, if there even is such one. But the therapists themselves have to be grounded in in an awareness-based or mindfulness-based uh, capacity. Mm. If they themselves aren't present or don't understand the mind uh, and are working from some just theoretical model, it's not necessarily, it may be of some help to the client, but not necessarily. And that's, you know, one thing in the, in the Buddhist psychotherapy model and the core process psychotherapy that I did, a lot is focused on the therapist. The therapist has to do a lot for him or herself, you know, for themselves. They have to really have a, a, an ability to ground themselves in present moment awareness, be fully aware of what's going on in their mm. own mind, as well as be completely available and open to the client and receive what's happening for the client in a very open, non-judgmental, compassionate way and hold all of that in the space in, in, a, um, in a way that what we we refer to as establishing a holding field, a skillful holding field, where the client feels safe, where you're aware of what's going on, that you're allowing those qualities of kindness, compassion, sympathetic, joy, equanimity to emerge as, as needed. And also you're directing, subtly just helping the client to inquire into what's going on for them. So in, in the model that I was trained in, you know, the, the gentle question of what's, what's happening now and how is that for you? So it's a real encouragement for them to inquire into what's arising without this idea that we're going to fix it or solve it or get to the bottom of it. It's an inquiry. So it's a mutual inquiry as well. Our kind of process was. Now, I think a lot of psychological approaches these days, if it's just theoretical, it's about fixing a problem mm. or talking about a problem in more of a counseling way and try this and do that and more behavioral techniques um, that can be helpful for people. Now, the other variable is what is this client looking for? Some and, and what is their personality type? So some people really respond to, say, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is very much about, you know, looking into the conditioned habits of thought and literally changing thoughts, you know, putting, putting in, um, changing your thoughts really deliberately. You know, for some people that works really well. For some people, they're just not into it. They really want more of an emotional support. They want a support to explore their emotional reactions to the world. Um, so f for the client to find a therapist that works for them is what's important. It's not a any client fits every therapist or every therapist fits all clients. It has to find... Really, it's about that that person is needing a particular kind of help, and in a way, they're looking 
for something they may not be aware of what until they meet someone they feel the sense of trust and an ability to open up and that that relationship then can become a safe place for them to explore what's going on. And so you may do a lot of talking about what's going on in the present, but that may also include going back into the past, like what's what's happened in your early family of origin and how it relates to the present. Yeah, so when clients are seeking therapy, they you know, in any models, they're usually encouraged to look around a bit and meet with a therapist here and there and get a sense of do I feel comfortable with this person, with this approach? You know, because that's a big part of opening up and exploring what's going mm. on. Um, so, yeah, one shoe doesn't fit all by any means. Mm. Um, yeah, does that I, answer your question? I'm not I, sure I if do. I, got to I do all. think it answers the question. Um, I also just, I've got a kind yeah. of a supplementary question. I'm not sure whether you can answer this from your own experience as a Buddhist nun. Um, because it's also it also seems to me that perhaps even though they've both got this concern with um, alleviating and ending suffering, they've got a slightly different domain. And I know that some it's not uncommon for people who do have mental health problems to go to a Buddhist teacher to not not necessarily to go mm-hmm. to you know the, the the senior monk, the senior nun. Uh, and that, you know, what what's your feeling about that? Because I know some senior monks that have, are feeling like, well, we're not really equipped to deal with uh, particularly serious psychological illnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, yeah. I don't know whether yeah. then we could say that's a point of departure or, or they've got slightly different or somewhat different um, concerns. What, what's your experience, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of, people with mental ill health illnesses coming to monastics for help and is there perhaps a limitation on what Buddhism, traditional Buddhism can offer? What are your thoughts on that matter? Well, it depends very much on that particular teacher and their own insights, their own um, capacity to respond to who's presenting. Obviously, someone who has serious you know, really debilitating mental health issues, then they need a much larger field of support. You know, they'll they'll need a psychologist, a psychiatrist, maybe some medication and regular, you know, psychotherapeutic support. But they could still, you know, they might still gain a, a lot of insight from what the Buddhist teacher, that Buddhist teacher may might be able to offer, depending on their questions, depending on their inquiry depending on their level of insight already. But sometimes, you know, just feeling the compassion of the other, whether it be a Buddhist teacher or, or a psychotherapist, just feeling the kindness and compassion of someone can, without judgment, you know, can actually bring a sense of, of feeling um, a little bit of ease for that person who's in distress. And and then an ability to just relax more and and then look more clearly into their own mind and heart. So whatever advice they might get from the teacher or support from the psychotherapist can help. It's a it's it's a dance, you know, whether it's from a Buddhist teacher or with a, within a psychotherapy, you really don't know which way it's mm. going. 
I mean, you you don't you don't necessarily know what's going to help this client. It's a it's a dance. It's a step by step movement that you take, and you don't know what that next step may be. But you have to be fully with what's happening now, and that's exactly how the meditative process happens. Yeah. If we have ideas about where this should go and what I should be getting, we're just creating a, a field of dust yeah. and dukkha. We have to learn how to be fully present and and observe what's happening by itself and observe the, um, the particular causes and effects and, and start to develop skill which allows you know the suffering to open out and um, wisdom to mm. deepen. It's it's a, it's exact same process in in a psychotherapeutic relationship, if it's you know grounded in that kind of wisdom. Because if you're proceeding just with ideas, reality isn't going to come along and agree with that. Reality is going to show you something different, you know. And if you've got your own ideas, this person feels is not going to be met. If they're not being met, they don't feel like they're being seen or heard or understood. There's no real resolution. Mm. So when we learn to meet the other or meet our own, the manifestation of suffering as it arises within us, or not just suffering, any phenomenal experience, we learn to meet that with presence, with compassion, with kindness. It, it teaches mm. us. Yeah. It teaches us and its it own nature. And it sounds to me like... Mm, it's and it sounds also like this is not an either-or situation. It could very well be that person who's suffering from mental illness could benefit from doing both as what you're saying as well absolutely absolutely and in some cases um, depending on the person and their particular experience meditation is not necessarily um, a good thing because people can get caught up in a lot of rumination you know just remembering or re-traumatized through just getting stuck in traumatic memory so, Can I pick you up on that? So Can it's I pick fair, you up on that? Because that was yeah, where course. I was really heading with my next question, actually, which was, um, I mean, you've explained how the practice of mindfulness has really seeped pretty heavily into the realm of psychotherapy, and there's various forms of mindfulness-based therapies that are available now. And you yourself have uh, emphasized this a lot yourself, and of course, it's the seventh factor of the of the Eightfold Path, one of the things that's come up recently in some of the interviews I've done is that, well, and this is, it's great, mindfulness, it's great, but what about all these other factors? So uh, from mm. a Buddhist perspective, uh, what, I mean, apart from mindfulness, mindfulness is great, yep, do mindfulness, but are there other aspects of the path that could really support someone? And particularly, I mean, for some people with mental illness, maybe meditation is not a good starting point. And I think this is not well understood. I think at the moment, a lot of people in Western society are saying, oh yeah, meditation is going to fix everything. And in some cases, particularly people who have psychotic disorders, or maybe just like you say, excessive thinking, just like this obsessive thinking, maybe meditation isn't the best place to start. What, what are your thoughts on that? Are there other things apart from mindfulness that could really benefit people who have you know, a mental illness? Well, just there's a lot of good things in, in what you question there. And just to make a difference between mindfulness and meditation, because I think mindfulness is good always, because mindfulness is not just about sitting 
down and and watching your breath. That's you know what I would class more a meditation yeah. practice. But mindfulness is something we can engage in everyday life. So it's just bringing attention to what you're actually doing, what you're engaged with, and rather than just so we're actually. Um, working against the habit of being absorbed in thinking of the future or thinking of the past and just acting automatically to just bringing attention to what we're doing. So anyone can benefit from that, I think, if they want to. That's the key. They need to be interested enough to want to pick that up, which just a little aside, um, you know, just bringing mindfulness into all the mental health facilities and trying to teach people is not is not yeah. the answer because many of them don't give aren't aren't interested. They don't want to hear about it. It's not being introduced in the right way. They're not. It's not grabbing their interest. They're just seeing it as a, a psychologist trying to give them some intervention, and it's not really being necessarily taught in an in depth oh, way. But those who are interested, can I just in, interrupt briefly because I just yeah, want to pick up on that because yeah. I I work in the field of education and I saw. Um, a recent uh, study was released and it said very much what you just said, which is that there's a lot of people in different schools mm. introducing mindfulness into schools or meditation into schools. And the finding was that it's not working and it's not working because where there is no buy-in, where there is no, where the student is not interested, perhaps I've seen these yeah, cookie yeah. cutter solutions, you know, this kind of template, the teachers don't yeah. meditate and yet they're taught yeah. to, to Teach meditation, teach it, and it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's where it won't work. There's no understanding. Yeah. There's no understanding. Understanding and compassion, actually, wisdom yes. and compassion, right view. You know, it really has to. You know, the Buddha taught very intuitively, specifically for who was mm. in front of him, and he had a different way of saying something to each different personal group because that was what they needed to hear at that time to catch their interest to break through the obstacle or whatever it was. Um, so even though we have these paradigms that sound a bit cookie cutter like the Eightfold Path and Four Foundations of Mindfulness, actually to teach them takes real understanding and real skill. And even if you have a little bit of understanding, personal understanding, if you've practiced it yourself, then you'll be able to convey it better. Uh, the more wisdom you have, I think, or compassion, the more you'll be able to show someone how to access that. But even the Buddha wasn't able to make people interested, <laughs> though they so weren't true, interested. You know, he couldn't he couldn't enlighten the whole world. And even those he couldn't enlighten all of his disciples. Yeah. They were still obstructed by different levels of ignorance. So he did his best. Even he wasn't hundred percent successful. <laughs> But yeah, that's the problem, you know, when things become, oh, you know, these, you use the term cookie cutter, these cookie cutter yeah. solutions, systematization, mm. it's deadening mm. in a way, it's very deadening. But um, yeah, so that's true. So getting back to what you said, so making that distinction between mindfulness and meditation, I think mindfulness is always good because it's just an encouragement to mm. be here now, you know, wake up because our suffering is predominantly coming from our habitually habitual fixation on thinking thoughts of the past thoughts of future all about me 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 but the more we wake up just be here be present breathe connect with the body you feel already a lot of that tension is beginning to ease out but it takes a while for your whole 
body-mind system to get the hang of it and feel the benefit of it because our habit patterns are so strong um, and our delusion is so strong. So, yeah, I think mindfulness is always beneficial depending how it's taught and picked up. But meditation, for someone who has um, maybe in a particularly situation where they're obsessively thinking about something really painful, to sit down and that, that's all that assails them is not going to help them very much. So they may be better off sitting down or lying down and listening to something with some beneficial relaxing music because the music bypasses the, the um, conceptual mind and goes straight to the sympathetic, parasympathetic system. It calms hmm. the body if you have calming music, uh, you know, because there's nothing to do with thinking if you just listen. And sometimes some simple guided meditation can, can help. But to sit down with your own obsessive thoughts, for most of us, you know, without um, an extreme mental health issue, we've all got mental health issues. Yes. <laughs> we all experience dukkha. And we will sit down and meditate and be assailed by our thoughts, but we tend to have enough ability to recognize you know that's what's happening and to see it as conditioned um you know conditioned stuff playing out and to make decisions okay i'm going to get up and do something else or i'm going to do something else rather than be stuck in that place but for people with mental health issues they don't necessarily have that facility to make those choices and just feel assailed by and get lost in hmm. Yeah, so no no cookie-cutter solutions. But back to part of the early part of that question, yeah, it's not just mindfulness. Mindfulness has been shorn from its other factors of the path. And this is one place where there are big distinctions between a psychotherapeutic intervention and a Buddhist practice. The Buddhist practice is um, rooted, founded in... Um, the the practitioner's willingness to take on a training in sila that i want to take on you know refraining from harmful activity of body speech and mind according let's say the five precepts is the basic foundation um and this is really supports the path as we know as buddhist practitioners um the path of sila um is really supportive and we all get it wrong, but we learn from that. You know, that's what we have to, to do, but at least we're making that choice. Whereas some people, maybe in a psychotherapeutic intervention with mindfulness, ethics might not come into the picture at all. And it's not for a therapist to so-called teach or advise a client in terms of their, you know, their ethics. It's not what that particular relationship about, unless the client is really asking and inquiring into it. Um, so it differs a lot there, and you know, I would say that would be the main difference. And in Buddhism, certainly all these eight factors of the Eightfold Path, they're all connected, they all work together very clearly. And developing right view in terms of starting to understand the mind in relation to the Four Noble Truths, um, trying to generate wholesome intentions and actions, body, speech, and mind, and to develop some kind of 
meditation practice is is the whole of the path and it develops in its own time was just taking mindfulness it, it can have some benefits but without those other factors one hopes that and i've certainly seen cases where clients get more interested in it and just their increased capacity of mindfulness and awareness brings a natural wisdom uh, which you know bleeds into all of their their life. Mm, mm. Okay, well that's a fantastic answer. I've got one more question. I'm going to put you on the on the spot here. The hard question: uh, Buddhism mm -hmm. or psychotherapy? Which one do you think works better? <laughs> oh well, I think given everything I've said, um, gosh, I I can't say one works better. I think they. And when I'm talking psychotherapy, I'm talking Buddhist mm -hmm. psychotherapy. So I can't really make that distinction if it's informed with Buddhist models. I, th I think, from my perspective, that, that Buddhist psychotherapeutic model is really quite a profound and holistic um, paradigm to work with. It's still very variable, as it is for a monastic, you know, we can say, or a Buddhist practitioner, we can say the Buddhist model. Uh, the Buddhist Dharma is holistic and complete, but in terms of finding a teacher, mm. you know, or finding a Sangha to practice with, or finding a source of of learning where you can continue to learn um, about Buddha Dharma, it's similar for the client finding a therapist that they really resonate with, a skilled therapist, and engaging in therapy, and if it's working. Then, then that's great. If it's helping, it's great. Um, for us, you know, as you know, uh, the practice of Buddha Dharma is not a quick fix mm. either. And you know, much of our learning, actually, coming into a deeper wisdom, is recognizing that. You know, we, we start out enlightenment or bust. You know, <laughs> we give it everything, and uh, we usually end up smashing against a brick wall, um, <laughs> metaphorically. And like, oh right. So it's not it's not as easy as it hmm. sounds, you know. And so you have to trust the process, uh, but keep deepening the inquiry. And um, you know, I'm I'm not sure. I've always stayed interested in Buddhism. I'm I'm not sure if there's probably many people who've gotten into Buddhist practice, but then fallen away altogether and have lost interest. I don't know, but I trust as spiritual beings having a human experience that people will come into their their uh, own spiritual journey in different ways and if it's not buddhism that works for them they'll find another mm, way mm. very well stated yeah. so i can't say I'm not an easy thing to answer so it's not, it's not either no, it's, or. A, it's a false dichotomy it's, um, really because of course we can you can you can do both you can do both as well at the same yeah. time there's and there's so many variables mm, within mm. both as well. Okay. Very well stated. Yeah. Thank you very much, Aya Jatendria, for coming on Treasure Mound Podcast and uh, sharing your experience and wisdom. Thank you very kindly. Thank you Take to care. our listeners for joining us for this episode of Treasure Mountain about Buddhism and psychotherapy with Aya Jatendria. If you'd like to find out more about Aya Jatendria, you can go to vivekahermitage.com and there's a link in the show notes below. If you enjoy this podcast, I'd appreciate if you could share this episode with your friends or other people who you think could benefit from its sage advice. 
Treasure Mound Podcast is part of the Everyday Dharma Network. You can find out more about the Treasure Mound Podcast by going to everydaydharma.net. There you can find out about previous episodes and guests as well as transcriptions of our interviews. You'll find out about the other podcasts on the Everyday Dharma Network as well. I hope you can join us again for our next episode of Treasure Man Podcast as we seek for the treasure within.